Have you ever heard of Baltazar Hubmeyer? Who's heard of Baltimore, Baltazar Hubmeyer? Anybody? He was born in 1480 AD, near Augsburg, and he acquired the degree of the Doctor of Divinity. And he became a priest. And he became a believer, he was a priest, and then he became a believer in Jesus Christ, and he embraced Protestantism, which at that time was very, very dangerous to do. The power and the might of the Pope's power reigned supremely. In 1527, Balthazar was arrested, and a year later he was put on trial, and he was sentenced to die. In fact, listen, the first time he was arrested, he was arrested twice, the first time they put him on the rack of torture. And in the midst of that pain, in the midst of that anguish, he recanted of some of his beliefs. But he was so, he he was freed, but he was so convicted that he had recanted of what he believes in his soul, that he went back to preaching, and he was a very, very powerful, very effective preacher. He went back to preaching, and he began to write. And then he was imprisoned again. And this time he was put on trial and he was put on the rack again. And this time he would not recant. His wife cheered him on and told him to stay true to his faith. And he was sentenced to die. What was his crime? You want to know what his crime was? Now listen, I want you to hear this because now it's going to get us ready to receive the word of God. Here's his crime for which Balthazar received the death penalty. He taught the baptism. He taught the baptism was only for the person who had believed in Jesus Christ. You see, all the church, all the Catholic church, baptized infants, children who had not yet had the opportunity or even the ability to put their belief in Jesus Christ. He taught that's not believer's baptism. That's not biblical baptism. And so in April 1525, Hubmeyer followed Christ and believers baptism himself. And a few days later on Easter day, he baptized over 300 believers and he was imprisoned and put to death. Christian brothers and sisters, I'm speaking to you who have put your faith in Jesus Christ. Likely that's not everybody that's in this room. But Christian brothers and sisters, let me ask you a question. Would you get baptized if it would possibly get you jailed or killed? Because in countries like Nepal, it once meant imprisonment. And for Soviet, Chinese, and Eastern Bloc believers, it was akin to signing your own death warrant. In Muslim countries today, like Pakistan, believers' baptism, friends, listen, it's almost guaranteed to to get you receiving death threats. In fact, in the early days of the church, 
Here's a quote from Mark DeHaan from what we all, many of us read, our daily bread. As long as a man gathered with Christians, he was tolerated. But listen, once he submitted to baptism, he declared to all that he belonged to the church and immediately he would begin to be persecuted, hated, and despised. In baptism, he had burned his bridges behind him. So let me ask you that question again. Would you get baptized? Would you follow Jesus Christ into the waters if it could get you killed? Well, somehow Christians throughout all of the church history have considered it a privilege to follow Christ into the waters of baptism. So today... What we're going to do is we prepare for tomorrow's, for Sunday's baptism service. We're going to look at our Savior's baptism. I want to draw our eyes to Jesus. And we're going to look at the baptism of Jesus. So if you could get your Bibles out, let's read it together. And we're going to stand up and we're going to give the authority and the respect to the Word of God. So if you are able, let's stand. If you're not able, then you stay right where you are and read it with us. I'm going to read it. You follow along. This is Mark chapter 1. We'll start at verse 9. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens opening and the spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven. You are my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. The spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness And he was in the wilderness 40 days, being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals, and the angels were ministering to him. You may be seated. All right, so let's just take it right through the the text. Here's verse 9. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. Okay, so let's do something that's a little bit difficult for us who are living in this century in America. Let's get our, our, ourselves into the shoes of someone who's living in the days of Jesus. So here he is. He goes from Nazareth down to Bethany. That's where John the Baptist is baptizing. Not the Bethany, which is the home of Lazarus and Mary and Martha. That's not that Bethany. This is the Bethany across the Jordan. It's in the Judean region. And it's 60 miles. So he's walking 60 miles. He's in Nazareth. He walks 60 miles. Listen, he's got a, he's got a purpose. He's got an initiative. He's going to get baptized. By the way, from my house in Forks to the Millens for the baptism on Sunday afternoon, it's 26 miles almost exactly. Jesus walked over twice that. You see the Jordan River, friends, listen, if you, if you take the Jordan River, which begins at the base of Mount Hermon, comes down into the top part of the Sea of Galilee, flows out of the bottom of the Sea of Galilee, and empties into the Dead Sea. If you take that whole river, you're at about 82 miles. If you floated, listen, if you floated down the river, let's say you're in a kayak, like some of our people were today on the Lehigh, Let's say you floated down the river, then you're going to be moving, you're going to be going 200 miles because it's so, it's so curvaceous and almost comes back on itself several times. So you got this Jordan River. Now I don't know, you know, if what you think the Jordan River looks like, but it averages 10 feet deep. At its widest spot, it's 100 feet. Beautiful river. 
And we get to this Jordan River and we see John the Baptist. He's got this name because he's baptizing thousands of people. He's leading Israel into a revival. And to see what was driving this revival, we need to get into the climate of Israel. Now, I don't know. I'm just giving you a little bit of information on the Jordan River. A little information on how far, how far Jesus had to walk to get from Nazareth down to the Bethany across the Jordan. Let me tell you a little bit about what Israel was like in the days of Jesus. They were slaves. The entire people of the Jews were in subjection to Rome. Rome was their master. And they hated it. They were in bondage, just like they were in bondage to Egypt thousands of years before. Now they're in bondage to Rome. Now listen, how do you understand that? Here we go. I want you to get into this. Let's picture America being conquered by Iran. All right, you got that? Iran has conquered us. They've sent an army over here. They've defeated our military. They've conquered us. In all of our culture and our history and our ideals, they are slowly being squeezed out and coming into our culture, coming into our history and our ideals. Now is Iranian culture and Iranian history and Iranian ideals. This is what it's like for Israel in the times of Jesus. Now, I want you to try imagine that scenario that I just helped you to picture. And I want you to gain, along with me, an appreciation for the misery of Israel. And I want you to feel the excitement as John the Baptist, he's baptizing thousands, Sadducees, Pharisees. People are coming to John to be baptized. There's a revival growing and the, this fervor and this excitement that the Messiah that we've been waiting for thousands of years, the Messiah is coming and is John the Messiah? See, that's why they're flocking out there. They're wondering, is John our long-awaited Messiah? Because we believe the Messiah is going to free us from Rome. We believe that the Messiah is going to make us our own kingdom. We're not going to be in subjection. We're not going to be slaves. We're going to be the respected Israel that we once were. So all of this excitement around John the Baptist. But listen, John wasn't the Messiah. He's what's called the forerunner of the Messiah. You know what the forerunner's job was? Forerunners were were in employment for almost all the kings. And they had a job. And their job was that when the king would go out on a political trip, when a king would go out on a tour in his, in his land, or go visit another country, he would send out the forerunner about a month before. Now listen, here's what the forerunner would do. The forerunner would make sure that the roads are repaired. He knew the exact roads that the king was going to be traveling on. His job was to make sure that those roads were repaired. His job was to walk through or ride through every village, every city, every town and say, the king is coming, the king is coming, get yourself ready. They would go out, they would spruce up their gates around their homes, they would clean up their yards, they would make sure that on the day of the king, they were parading the streets to respect their king. This was the forerunner's job. Listen, it was to prepare the people to receive their king. This was John. He was a forerunner, not to 
a Roman king, not to Herod, the king of the Jews. He was a forerunner to the king of kings, Jesus Christ. But the preparation, now listen, you got to get this, the preparation that he insisted on, it wasn't preparing and repairing your roads. It was preparing and repairing your hearts. You've got to have your hearts ready to receive the king, the Messiah. And he prepared them. Now listen, he prepared, he prepared them using two methods. One of which I'm doing with you right now. He preached and he baptized. He preached the same theme. Now how would you like that? If every single Saturday, every single Sunday, I would preach to you the same message. See, some of you don't listen anyways. You'd be like every week going, wow, it's something new this week. This is what John would do. He would preach the same message. Here was his sermon. You ready? I'll preach it for you. It's just a few words. Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. Prepare your heart. Repair your heart by repenting, for the king is coming. I'm his forerunner. And he's going to establish his kingdom. And if you don't want to be on the outside looking in, then you've got to repent. And then he would baptize them. Now, why would he baptize them? Remember, he had two methods. He preached and he baptized. That's how he repaired. That's how he prepared. Why did he baptize? It was a sign. A baptism was a sign. It demonstrated that you were repentant. Why? You see, Jews did not ordinarily baptize. They didn't ordinarily baptize. The closest thing they had were two things. Priests would take a ritual bath before they ministered in the temple. The only other thing they had, even close to what John was doing, was if a Gentile wanted to convert to Judaism. And if a Gentile wanted to come into the promises, into the blessings of Judaism, then the Jewish priests would take a tub of water that had been set apart for purity. They would take a tub of water and the Gentile would come in and the Gentile would submerge all the way below that water and then rise back up. And it signified that all of the pagan defilement of a horrible Gentile, non-Jewish, person. All of that defilement was washed away and now they can stand in the promises and the blessings of Israel. See, when Jews came to John to be baptized, he didn't use water set apart for purity. He used the Jordan. And when they came to John to be baptized, what they were saying is this. Now, you've got to appreciate this to understand the repentance. They were saying this, I am no better than a Gentile in God's eyes. You know how hard it is for a Jew to say that? Do you know what repentance, do you understand what humility would be required to submit to John's baptism? I am as defiled as a Gentile. I am as needy before God as a non-Jewish person. I am coming to you, John, because I have torn my heart in order to repair it and in order to prepare it to receive the King of Kings, the Messiah. Please baptize me. 
Even though they were descendants of Abraham, it wasn't enough. It would not gain any Jew entrance into the into God's kingdom, just having your lineage Jewish. They needed to receive the king. It was an admission of sinfulness and the need for repentance. So John's preaching, and he's preaching these words, bear fruits in keeping with repentance. And what he's saying is this, listen, if you're really repentant, if your heart's really preparing for the Messiah, then listen, you follow me down into the Jordan, and I'm going to submerge you into that water, and I'm going to bring you back up, and I'm going to baptize you. That's going to be the proof. Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Well, then get baptized. Bear fruit. Let it grow. The first fruit that ought to grow in your heart is baptism, John said. And if you're, un, if you're willing to undergo that humiliating baptism, then your heart is ripped in repentance. Friends, you see, the ground is level on the banks of the Jordan. Every single person is in need of God's forgiveness. Amen? That was weak. Amen? Amen. See, baptism is not able to save anybody. Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Meaning, repentance has already occurred. Bear fruit with it. Let fruit grow out of your life. And the demonstration of that repentance is baptism. It's not able to save anybody. It's an outward sign. It's a symbol of an inward change of repentance. The day I got married... March 24th, 1990. I took this ring. Actually, Denise took this ring. But I took her ring and I put it onto the first knuckle. And our pastor repeated the ring ceremony. And when he was finished, I slid it all the way up. She did the same for mine. And now that ring is a symbol. And that symbol is that I married. That ring is a symbol. And that symbol is that our love is not going to end. But the rain came on after we did the vows. It's the vows when you're married. Listen, if you're not married and you're going to get married, and I tell everybody that I married this, you're married in God's eyes at your vows. That's when he joins you. Not when I say, or your pastor says, by the authority of the state of Pennsylvania. God doesn't care about that. That's just something you do at the end of weddings. You're married when you say your vows. That God brings you two together, and there is no more dividing line. You're one flesh. That's why every single divorce rips on jagged lines that leave scars. Well, just like the ring is a symbol, baptism is a symbol that you are repentant. That you are saved. Baptism doesn't save anyone. So here comes Jesus. Remember, we're, we're, we're looking at the baptism of Jesus. Here he comes. He didn't need any forgiveness. He didn't need to repent. So why did Jesus step into the waters of the Jordan? Why did he insist? Because in the Greek language, John's arguing with Jesus. Jesus saying, John, you need to baptize me. John's his cousin, by the way, born six months before. He's saying, John, you need to baptize me. And John's going, no, wait, wait a minute. I need to be baptized by you. I don't need to baptize you. And they're arguing according to the Greek tense. Till finally John relents. He's puzzled. He says, I need to be baptized by you. And do you come to me? Jesus, he's saying, I believe you're the Messiah. I need you to baptize me, not the other way around. So why did Jesus insist on being baptized? You know that 
in church history, there's been all sorts of bizarre answers given to that. I'll give you a couple of them. There's an ancient book called the, the Gospel According to the Hebrews. It's not the, not the book of Hebrews. This is a, another book. It did not make it into the canon because of obvious discrepancies. But here's one of them. It concluded that Jesus submitted to baptism in order to please his mother and his siblings. They were saying, Jesus, come on, you've got to get baptized like the rest of us. And Jesus is arguing according to the Hebrew, according to the Hebrews. He's arguing, I don't need baptism. And they're saying, listen, please baptize, get baptized. Go to John and get baptized and find Finally, to please his mom, he submits to baptism. That's one of the heresies. Then you've got the Gnostics. When we get into our next series, we're going to start looking at this. The Gnostics, you know what they taught? They taught that Jesus was just an ordinary human. Pretty good one, but an ordinary human. Until his baptism where the Holy Spirit came into him and he remained filled with the Spirit, divinely no longer just a human, a human and God, until he was put on the cross. Because God can't die, the Spirit had to leave. And when the Spirit left, he he cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's the Gnostic heresy. That Jesus was just an ordinary man until baptism where the Spirit now came in to dwell. You got another heresy that arose and said that Jesus was adopted by God at his baptism. That was his adoption ceremony. God so, in effect, signed the adoption papers and declared, You are my son, my beloved son, with whom I am well pleased. That was the adoption ceremony. There's a lot of flawed reasons given for why did Jesus step into the waters. Jesus, the sinless Lamb of God, had no sin for which to repent. But it was necessary, he says, this is what his answer is to John, it's necessary for righteousness that he completely, listen, associate and identify with sinners. He had to do that fully so that he could be the high priest of which he could sympathize with our weaknesses. That he could die having lived all of the life that we live, yet sinless and holy. It was necessary that he completely associate with sinners and be placed among guilty humanity. When he was stepping into the waters of the Jordan, though he had no sin, he was saying, in effect, I am in these waters to identify with every single person who has fallen short of the glory of God, and that is every human being. That's you and that's me. And his baptism symbolized what he would fulfill on the cross. He would be fully immersed into the river of death. He would be buried underneath that river of death. And he would be raised out of that death to new life and out of those hideous waters. And he would lead the way into the eternal presence of God. Now listen, Jesus didn't die for his salvation. He died for our salvation. He didn't die because of any guilt that he possessed. He he died because of all of our guilt that was laying on him. When Jesus died on that cross, listen, this is amazing. It's called the great exchange. When Jesus died on that cross, God treated 
him, the sinless lamb of God, as if he had sinned in our place. That's how God treated him. And because Jesus has died on the cross, and when we put our faith in him, he treats us as if we've never had any sin, which was the life of Christ. You see that exchange? See, God punished his son as if my sin, your sin, was his sin. And God treats the believer as if he or she lived Christ's life, a perfect life in perfect obedience to everything God commanded. That's the great exchange. This is the mystery. This is the power of the doctrine of justification. And it's taught through baptism. So to fulfill all righteousness, to identify with sinners, he comes to John to be baptized. And look at verse 11. And when he came up out of the water... Immediately he saw the heavens opening and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. See that word opening? It means to divide with violence. Did you hear that? It means to rip something open. It's what all of my children seem to do with every bag of potato chips. They can't just, you know, pull and pull. They rip it asunder. I don't even know why I said that. It wasn't really in my sermon. But the only other time this word opening occurs in the New Testament. Listen, one other time. You ready? The only other time it occurs was when the veil or the curtain of the temple was ripped top to bottom. And God said, I could not wait for this moment. And when Jesus cried out, it is finished, and he gave up his spirit, God, the Father, reached his hands down and ripped that curtain and said, never again will anything keep me from the ones that I love and keep them from me. It's opening. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens ripped asunder violently. And all of a sudden, listen, if you're a Jew and you know your Old Testament... And you witnessed this. You would have remembered Isaiah 64.1. Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down. See, the Father tore apart the sky. And when he tore apart the sky, the Spirit of God descended on Jesus like a dove. You know, they had a lot of sacrifices you know, if you were a wealthy Jew, if you had a lot of means and a lot of money, and you wanted to give your best to God, you probably would sacrifice a bull. Pretty expensive animal. But if you didn't have a lot of money, maybe, maybe sort of more of the middle class, you couldn't afford a bull, you would sacrifice a lamb. But if you didn't even have the money for a lamb and you're among the poorest of the Jews. You still had a little bit of money, but you didn't have much. You're in the bottom lower class. They didn't really have a class society, but you're at the bottom. Then you're not going to be able to afford a bull and you can't afford a lamb. You're going to sacrifice a dove. Turtle doves. And if you can't even afford that, listen, if you can't even afford a bull or a lamb or turtle doves, you're going to be allowed to bring a little bit of grain. But you can't appear before God with nothing, according to the law. You've got to have something. So we see God 
the Holy Spirit descending down upon the Son of God like a dove. The most gentle of all birds. Did you know that doves don't even have talons? It's an extremely loyal bird, mourning over its mate when in, when in distress. And just as the dove was sent out in Noah's day and brought back good news that the waters had receded and God's wrath had abated. The dove of the Holy Spirit was a sign to the Jews declaring that the good news of God was reconciling the world to himself through Christ. And that Holy Spirit fluttered down gently upon Jesus and the prophetic words of Isaiah 11:2 were fulfilled and the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. This was a sign. This is the Messiah. This is my chosen one. My Spirit, like I prophesied from Isaiah, is resting upon him. And then a voice booms out. With a declaration from the Father, you are my beloved Son. With you I am well pleased. Now listen, that's significant. Abraham was called the friend of God. Ezekiel was called the Son of Man. Others were called men of God and servants of God. But only Jesus was ever called the Son of God. And he was called that title 52 times. You are my beloved Son. He is one with the Father. He possesses the same nature as the Father. He is equal with the Father. He is the radiance of the Father's glory. He's the exact representation of God's nature. Listen, I hear all the time people saying, I just want to know what God's like. Well, if you want to know what God's like, then get to know Jesus the Son. He's the exact representation of God. He's God in flesh. And all the angels worship him. And his Father loves him supremely. And here at his baptism, the Father speaks of both his affection of Jesus and his approval. Did you see both in there? You are my beloved son. There's my affection. With you, I am well pleased. There's my approval. Sometimes I lead groups. In fact, we just did this recently in our staff meeting. You know, if I don't have anything, I usually take the ball that I have a little uh, Nerf ball in my office and I'll lead a group. And what I'll do is we'll get around in a circle and I'll take that ball and I go first just so they can see what I want us to do. And I'll throw that ball to somebody and I'll, I'll instruct everybody. We're going to, we're going to, here's the purpose of this exercise. It's to speak, it's to build into the other person. So I'll throw that ball and I'll, I'll tell that person Something that I've seen in that person that makes me want to know Christ more. And I'll throw that ball to them and then when when I get done, they throw that ball to somebody else and then they speak. It's like weaving a web of affirmation around the group. But I've got one rule. I've got one rule. You have to speak to the person, not about the person. It's a whole lot more intimate, by the way, more difficult when you're speaking to the person rather than about the person. We see the Father speaking to Jesus in the Gospel of Mark. You are my beloved Son. With you I am well pleased. Mark Twain once said that I could go for two months on one good compliment. 
See, a good father communicates both affection and approval of his children. So Jesus comes up out of that water. Can't you picture John the Baptist? I'm not sure exactly how they did it. I mean, when we baptize, I've got one other board member in the water, always an elder or a pastor, and, and we take the person down below the water, completely submerged, and then we bring them back up. I don't know how John did it, but I know John brought him back up, and when he came up out of that water... The sky was violently ripped open. The spirit descends and the voice of the father booms out his love and his pleasure for his son. And can I tell you that the moment that you put your trust in Jesus, something very, very similar occurred to you. You just might not realize it. Do you know that Jude 1.1 says that if you put your faith in Jesus, you are his beloved and you are kept And called by him. Christian, listen, this is the truth that you've got to ingrain in your mind. This is what you fight the devil with when the world lies to you and telling you that you're nothing, that you're no good in comparison to anybody else. Listen, here's the truth. God says when you put your faith in him, he boomed down into your soul. You're his beloved. He keeps you. He called you. The spirit of God lives inside of you, taking up residence. It's his power making you like Jesus. See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we, Christian, we should be called the children of God. And so we are. There is great power to the Christian who truly understands who he or she is in Christ. And Mark, more than any other gospel writer, shows us how important these truths are. You ready? Now listen, why did I read? Why did I read? About the baptism of Jesus and his temptation, his testing. Because this is what we read. The Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness. We've got Jesus is baptized. He comes up. The the sky rips. The dove of the Spirit comes down. The Father's voice booms approval and affection. And all of a sudden that Spirit, you know, that fluttered him, fluttered down upon him so gently, immediately drove him straight into the Judean wilderness, the desert. Almost inhabitable. Spirit drove him out into the wilderness. Look at your text. Being tempted by Satan, he was with the wild animals. See, the Jews viewed the wilderness. Listen, we we think differently. You're thinking Yukon. You're thinking, you know, Redwood Forest wilderness. That's not the wilderness. The Jews, when they thought of wilderness, barely habitable, it was a metaphor as the anti-Eden. As Eden is plush and habitable in the presence of God, the wilderness is as far as you can get outside of God's presence. That's the Jewish mind. It was the wild abode of demons. It was a place of danger. It's a metaphor to us of the world. See, you get, you, the, the Spirit of God will drive you, Christian, drive you out into the world. Not to be like the world, but to be in it and a light to the world. He will drive you out into the world. This is a metaphor of the world. And Jesus was thrust out into the wilderness to do battle with its prince, Satan. And the power, now listen, I want you to hear this. The power of his father's approval 
and his affection combined with the indwelling power of the Holy Spirit was the preparation Christ needed to endure 40 horrific days of hell being tempted straight from Satan. Listen, this is why it's so important that you not only, Christian brother and sister, have the Spirit of God in you. Listen, it's important that you know who you are to God. You are His beloved. You are His child. You are indwelt by the Spirit of God. He speaks love over you. You are precious to Him. You are the pupil of His eye that closes protectively over you. This is the power you need to be in the world and not of it to endure for Christ's glory. So is it possible? Is it possible that at baptism, believer's baptism, that when it's properly understood and obediently followed, can, can that baptism actually strengthen us and prepare us to live faithfully to our God? I would say yes. Because when that Christian comes up out of that water, which will happen in our service 15 times. They come up out of that water. Her knowledge that she is united to Christ produces a greater confidence that all the blessings of Christ are hers as well. And there is great peace and there is assurance that she belongs to her Heavenly Father. That the Spirit of God has sealed her for salvation. She doesn't travel through the wilderness of the, of the world alone. She She's not in her own power. She has company, good company. She's united to the Son who is rested upon by the Spirit of God and approved of by God the Father. That's the power of baptism. Which is why our evangelical free church stated it this way. The Lord Jesus mandated two ordinances, baptism and the Lord's Supper, which visibly and tangibly express the gospel. Though they are not the means of salvation when celebrated by the church and genuine faith, these ordinances confirm and nourish the believer. Jesus humbly submitted to baptism, signifying that his entire willingness to stand in the place of sinners and will and soon suffer and die for them. And out of those waters, the Spirit of God anointed him for ministry. The Father declared his love. And from his baptism, the Spirit propelled him into immense suffering on the way to the cross. Fifteen people. We're baptizing. I hope you're there. Listen, baptism strengthens your faith as you watch this. It's 15 pictures of the gospel. 15 unique testimonies of God's saving power. That's what you're going to hear. Baptism, listen, it is a joyful funeral. Did you hear that? It's a joyful funeral. It is a public, joyful declaration that the person that I was before is dead and buried. Now listen, some of you aren't looking at this. You're missing the best part of the sermon. This is the theology. Listen, you've got to know it. It's a joyful funeral. 
It is the declaration to the witnesses of God's people, the church all the way around, the person I was before, that's dead. That is gone. It is buried. It is below the water. It will never come back out. It cannot come back to me. I've got a new nature that has completely replaced the old nature. And as we lower them beneath the waters, they are declaring that their old nature is is dead. And as we completely submerge them below the water, they're declaring that the permanency of that death is ongoing. And as we bring them back up, they're declaring that they are a new creation in Christ. They've got the Spirit of God inside them. They've got the declaration of God's love upon them. That's baptism. And all of that, not because the waters of baptism save anybody. It's because the death, burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ can save anyone. And while you're probably not going to see a dove fluttering down upon them, if you did, I would be the first to freak out. That'd be awesome, though. I want you to know that God is pleased with their obedience through baptism. He is going to work powerfully His grace into their lives. And He is going to prepare them to be able to go out into the world and be a witness for the glory of God. Do you remember how we began this message with Balthazar Hubmeyer? Do you remember him who was willing to die because of his belief in believers' baptism? Listen to this, March 10th, 1528, after being tortured on the rack in Vienna and refusing to recant of his faith, he was taken out to the stake and tied. And once they tie you to the stake, you know how they did it? Once they tie you to the stake, then they rub gunpowder in your beard and in your hair because they want it to be an entertaining, exciting moment. And after they rub the gunpowder and the beard and the hair, they pile the wood all the way around the victim who cannot move. And then they light it. And they did with Balthazar. They rubbed the gunpowder into his hair and he is recorded to have said these words. Ready? Oh, dear brothers, pray God that he will give me patience in this suffering. I will die in the Christian faith. You know what helps seal his conviction? It's his baptism. And as the fire neared his beard, his final two words on this life, which I can promise you were the first two words of his next life, and they were these, O Jesus. And his wife, who was standing nearby, is shouting encouragement for him to hold steadfast to his faith. And as the water, as the the fire came to his beard and it began to detonate him, he refused to recant. He stayed a beacon of God's glory for everybody that was there. You remember that wife that was shouting encouragement? Her reward was given her three days later. She was thrown from a bridge into the Danube River river with a large stone tied around her neck. Baptism is powerful. It is the preaching of the gospel. 
It is the symbol of a repentant heart. It is the sign that you have put your faith in Jesus and you have been joined with Jesus in his death, his burial, and his resurrection. And it's got the power to give you grace enough to live in this world and know who you are in Christ. You are the beloved son of God and you have the spirit of God in you.